Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Let's get started. This is a before and after photo of, um, actually, of a, of a homeless man. This is his before and after. Here's another guy's before and after. Uh, and quite a makeover, right? But like we love a before and after story. Whether we're talking about you know the makeover of a, of a homeless person, whether we might be talking, we might be talking about the weight loss story of a of a famous celebrity. Here's one. That's Jennifer Hudson. Um, here's another. And you know the 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 dramatic difference between before and after. Like we you you just can't look away from that. You might it might be a, a teeth whitening before and after. It might be like a home makeover before and after. Well. Today's Holy Ghost story about Saul, that's a before and after story. Let me share the before, okay? In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, we read that Saul approved of their killing Stephen. Okay, so, so Saul approved of it. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. That's who we're talking about, and that's the before. Jump ahead to chapter 9, verse 31. Here's the after. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. That's the after for Saul. Now, how did we get from Saul began to destroy the church to the church had peace and was strengthened? That's what today's Holy Ghost story is about. This probably is a familiar story for you, but uh, today we're going to look at it through the eyes of some of the other people involved. Okay, we're going to begin with Saul and we're going to talk about Ananias and look at it through the lens of the disciples and Barnabas. And just like in these other Holy Ghost stories, what we want to do is we want to ask how are we going to know when the Spirit is doing the same sort of thing today? All right, let's just begin with Saul. Okay, let's begin with Saul of Tarsus. I want to deal with a com- couple of common misconceptions about this guy, Saul. First, I think lots of folks look at this story of the before and after and think that Saul turned into Paul. And that's not true. Saul is actually his Hebrew name, and Paul, or Paulus, is his Greek or his Latin name. And so there were some people in his life who post, you know, after meeting Jesus, they still called him Saul. And so it just depends on the context. Second, I think it's important to, to re- recognize that, um, you know, there are, I do think there are some people who think of Saul at that time as this like mindless, legalistic bad guy, like a villain. And, and I would just push back on that and say it's not true. I actually think Saul was a devoted Jewish Pharisee. That's what we know about him from Scripture. And it's, not, and it's not hatred of Christians that motivates him to do the things that he did, so much as it was a, a love for God's law. Okay? Like, from Saul's point of view, Christians are dangerous. Paul, like, like, from Saul's point of view, Christians are dangerous. They're a threat because they believe that Jesus' resurrection has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves through the efforts that we put into keeping the Torah and God's law. And and for Saul, that's not just heresy. That idea is dangerous. And for, so for Saul, every Jew who converts to Christianity is a threat. Okay? And that's why when we meet 
Saul for the first time, that's why he is standing by and approving and applauding when Stephen is killed. It's because he believes that every Jew who converts to Christianity is a threat to the Jewish faith. And so here in chapter 9, now he's heading to Damascus, and he's searching for more Christians. And what happens is we, we see that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, verse 3. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. And so suddenly, suddenly Saul knows that Jesus is Lord after all. Like, now, so imagine what it's like to be Saul and, and come to that realization. He must have a thousand questions. Like, what does this mean for the law? What does it mean for the traditions? What do I do with all that? What about all the Christians that I've spent all these years putting in prison? Now? What, do I, what happens there? What about the law and the prophets? How do I understand these now if Jesus is Messiah? What about all the time in my life that I spent on my education and my profession that, was, that were just like predicated on the Jewish law and the, and the, uh, you know, the idea that the, the Jewish faith is the true, the one true faith for the world. Well, he doesn't know the answers to any of these questions. He's got zero answers. All, all he knows is that this is a turning point for him. That, you know, like Saul's life was heading in one direction and now it's changing. And, and, and when that happens, we call that a conversion. Okay, that's a conversion experience. And um, in, in the 19th century, there was an Anglican minister who did a ton of work on the life of Saul. And he, he wrote, um, his name is Frederick, Frederick Farrar. He says, it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of Saul's, of St. Paul's conversion as one of the evidences of Christianity. The same man who just before was persecuting Christianity with the most violent hatred should come all at once to believe in him whose followers he had been seeking to destroy he had everything in the world to lose. He had nothing conceivable to gain. And yet, in spite of all, overwhelmed by a conviction which he felt to be irresistible, Saul, the Pharisee, became a witness of the resurrection, a preacher of the cross. That's Saul's story. But, but you know, this isn't just Saul's story. There's other people involved here. Let's talk, let's talk about Ananias. Because this guy, Ananias, comes to a turning point too. Now, we haven't met this guy before. In fact, we're not going to meet him again after. This is his only role in the story. What we know in verse 10 is that he is a disciple living in Damascus. Um, it, this is his hometown. This is a different, just by the way, this is a different Ananias than we met earlier who was married to Sapphira and who died by lying to the Holy Spirit. That's a different Ananias. Um, but this Ananias, he's from Damascus, his hometown. It, he's super familiar with Saul of Tarsus. And then Ananias, one day, he, just, he hears the voice of God. And the voice says to him, yeah, hey, Ananias, you know what? Uh, you know Straight Street? I want you to go there. I want you to go to Judas's house. And when you arrive there, I want you to ask for a man from Tarsus. And Ananias has got to be like, uh, wait a minute. A man from Tarsus? Uh, surely that couldn't be. And the voice tells him, Saul of Tarsus is, playing, is praying there. I told him that you're on your way. He needs you to restore his sight. You've got to understand, Ananias is like, what? And he's, got, he's objecting, right? And I can appreciate that. So verse 13, he says, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority here uh, from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
Like if Ananias goes, uh, he takes his life into his hands. Like a, a Christian just doesn't go around introducing himself to Saul of Tarsus. That's suicide. That's crazy. And that's why uh, Luke tells us in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, Saul, at this point, he's caused a lot of suffering for other people, right? And now it's he who's going to be the one who suffers. And it seems to me, it's, it's easy to hate somebody and to fear somebody if, if they're only a villain in your eyes. You know, if that's the only way that you see them. But Ananias is realizing, because of God's words to him, Ananias is realizing that Saul is a person and he's vulnerable and he's going to suffer. And so this is Ananias' turning point. Okay? So Ananias' feelings switch from fear of Saul to compassion for Saul. He goes in, he puts his hands on Saul, and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you, you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And like, that's it. That's Ananias' whole part in the story. Okay? Like, we've never met him before. We're never going to hear from Ananias again. There's no sermons. There's no missionary journeys. There's no busting out in the gift of tongues. His only part in Saul's story is to be the hands through which Saul receives the Spirit. That's it. And Ananias is totally okay with it. He's totally okay with it. Now, we've looked at Saul. We've looked at Ananias. This is also the story of the Christians in Damascus. So let's talk about the church in Damascus. When they heard about Saul, we read that they are astounded. And they ask in verse 21, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on his name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? Well, that's true. That is that is the same person. At least it was the same person. And, and the church here is in a tricky spot because Saul stayed in Damascus teaching about Jesus and he wants to join the disciples. So like imagine being that church, okay? We all know what Saul has done. And, and if we welcome him, if we let him in, he knows our names. He has access to our kids. He knows where we work and where we live. How do we know that he's not a spy for the Pharisees? Well, here's how. Luke tells us, verse 23, After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plot. So that so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. And so the church realizes, oh, this Saul, now Saul's in danger. Saul used to endanger us. Now he's the one in danger. Now we've got a couple of choices. We can give him over to the Jews, and he can become their problem. On the other hand, what if what if Saul really has changed? What if his conversion, what if, what if it's genuine and we we can't just give him over? What if we protect him? They're already mad at us because we're Christians. Do we really want to make it worse by hiding him as a fugitive? Well, we see their decision in verse 25. Verse 25 says that his, that, uh, his disciples took him by night. Saul's, Saul has disciples at this point. They take him by night and they lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. So you see, they've, they've embraced Saul as one of their own at this point, okay? Like not only is he, not only is he welcome at their, in their worship services, not only is he welcome in their home, not only is he welcome at their communion table, not only will they listen to his teaching, 
but now they have themselves, they have risked their own necks, right? They've risked their safety to, it's by helping Saul to escape. So this is a huge turning point for the church too. Now, what about Barnabas? Barnabas is another guy we need to, to look at here. Barnabas, his part here reminds me of a scene in the, the Matrix movies. Do you remember the Matrix movies? So there's in the second one, Matrix Reloaded, there's a scene where all of the people, all the living people are in Zion. And Zion, if you remember, it's like the last safe place on earth for humans. Okay? And they have a prophet named Morpheus. And Morpheus gathers all the people and they, he gives them this amazing, uh, exciting speech about why they shouldn't be afraid. But the thing is, that out, out, right outside Zion, there are bad people things. There are dangerous things. There are agents out there and there are sentinels out there. And anybody who goes out into the matrix is in danger. And if you go out into the society, if you go out into the culture, Zion can't protect you. And and it seems to me that's what it's like to be a Christian at this moment in Jerusalem. Okay. That's what it's like in Jerusalem. Like, like if it's hard in Damascus, well, here in Jerusalem, it's the center of the Jewish faith and the Jewish culture, and Jewish, Jewish history. This is where Stephen, the apostle, was martyred not long ago, okay? This is where Jesus was crucified not that long before this. And, and they're, they're far from Damascus. Most of them haven't heard about what, what's happened to Saul. To them, to the church in Jerusalem, the word hasn't all, gotten all the way down. He's still the bounty hunter who arrested their family and friends and pastors. If you're one of the Christians in Jerusalem, it feels like Zion. And the dangers are like out there somewhere. So imagine what it's like to be a Christian in Jerusalem. And then, then Saul arrives and he finds you. And he's like, hey guys, would I be able to come to church with you? <laughs> like, can you imagine? And it says, verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Yeah, like I can appreciate that. You know, they don't trust him, no doubt. Like that, and, and that's when Barnabas shows up. That's when Barnabas shows up. Barnabas arrives, he, he sees that Saul is excluded from the life of the church. He, he knows that he's an apostle, he can do something about it. And if he will vouch for Saul, then Saul is in. All right, all he's got to do is vouch for him. On the other hand, how does Barnabas know for sure that he can trust Saul? He wasn't there. He didn't see it with his own eyes. What if Saul turns out to be an agent after all? Like Barnabas would have vouched for him. That means whatever happens, you know, if, if Saul goes rogue, if Saul does damage and hurts the Christians in Jerusalem after Barnabas has vouched for him, now it's Barnabas's fault. Now Barnabas is par- partly responsible. Well, what happens? Verse 27, Luke says that Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had been the Lord, had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And so now we have a turning point for Barnabas. He's agreed to vouch for Saul, who's been embraced by the church. And then, verse 31, so the church had peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord, just like we heard earlier, living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So now we've seen all these turning points, right? So let's gather these turning points together and, and make, draw some lessons for them. This is what makes, these are, these are what make this a Holy Ghost story. The first thing we need to see, 
Okay, the first thing that I think the Holy Ghost is saying to us in this story is, first of all, no one comes to Jesus without help from friends. Right? Nobody comes to Jesus without help from friends. What, I, what do I mean here? I mean, I mean Saul's conversion, you, you've probably heard sermons on this, the conversion of Saul before, and the story is usually told as the story of God's miraculous work in the life of one person. And, and it is that. It is that. It's not less than that. But it's so much more than that. Because suppose Ananias says, I'm not going in there with him. Are you crazy? Suppose the Christians in Damascus or, Jer- or Jerusalem say, uh, you are not getting in here. Sorry, forget it. You're not coming in here. Or suppose Barnabas says, you know, Saul, I'm, I'm not ready to vouch for you yet. I'm an apostle. That means something. You know, I can't just go risking my status as an apostle on somebody like you. I can't go, just go vouching for just anyone. So you stick around here six months, maybe a couple of years, then we'll talk about whether I'll vouch for you or not. And, and what I want you to see here is there is a whole community of people involved in Saul's conversion. If any one of them refuses to do their part, that's actually the end of the story for Saul. Okay, and, and, and what I'm trying to say here is that's not just how it is for Saul. That's how it is for all of us. Look at, look at your life. Look at the life of, of your, your, the, your friends who you know are followers of Jesus and think of your influence on them. Nobody who starts following Jesus does that on their own. Okay, Whether we remember it or not, I think all of us had input and influence and support from other people. All, right? all of us had a little help from our friends. If not, I think we wouldn't be here. I think that that's important to recognize. Another thing that I think we learn from this story is, is this. A conversion of anyone involves a conversion for everyone. Let me say that again. A conversion of anybody involves a conversion of everybody. And, and, and this really kind of follows from the last point. Because it isn't just Saul's turning point in this story. It's actually a turning point for all of them. Because they knew Saul, they knew about him at least in his before days, right? They knew about him in his before days, but nobody knew that there was going to be an after. Okay, For them to play their part, that was really risky. God, God had brought each of them to a turning point where they, you know, they, each of them faces a moment of decision, has to make a, a leap of faith. And if God hadn't done that in them first, then they're going to keep all of their biases, all of their prejudices, and they're going to remain... Um, you know, biased against Saul, they're going to see Saul as only his before version. And if that's what happens, then there's no Paul the Apostle. God had to change their hearts. And it's not just true for the Apostle Paul. It's, it, it is really true for all of us who are followers of Jesus. Not only did we have help, but we needed God to get into the hearts of the people around us and do a conversion of any of, of all of them in order for them to get on board and help us along in order to change their disposition and change their posture and change their view toward us. God had to do a work. That's why I say a conversion of anyone involves a conversion for everyone. The third point that I want to take from this story is that the spirit isn't finished. He ain't, he is not finished. You know, as we've been going through this, these Holy Ghost stories, uh, we're, what we're trying to see is that what the spirit did in those days, he's doing in ours as well. And we want to be able to identify it. Like, how can we tell when it's really him? How can we discern if it's really the Holy Spirit? And I got a couple of thoughts here. I got a couple of thoughts. How can we know when it's the Spirit? 
I think when, when it's the spirit and we see a person's life change in front of us, I think that we should expect to feel compassion. We should expect to feel compassion. You remember what changed Ananias' mind about Saul? You know, you, you remember what, what made the disciples stop fearing him? It's when they all saw, saw how Saul was about to suffer. And that's compassion. Okay? That, that's where we realize, uh, yeah, I know that I know Saul has done some terrible things. And I, frankly, I don't care what Saul has done. If I, if I can relieve his suffering somehow, I want to. That's compassion. It is, it is selfless, it is costly, and it is totally countercultural. And I, I think one of the ways that we're going to know that it's the Holy Spirit changing us is that we're going to stop looking at each other as either a friend or an enemy. I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to start to see each other through the eyes of compassion. And we might not agree with each other's choices all the time. We might not agree with each other's views all the time. But we're going to start to understand why and how we got to be the way we are. All right? That's compassion. And, and later on, this same Saul, he's going to tell us that compassion is a sign that we are God's people. He says in Colossians 3, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So one, one, thing, one way that we're going to know that's the Spirit is we should expect to feel compassion. I think we can also expect to experience opposition. Opposition, what do I mean? Well, I, I, I think it's not hard to see that Saul's conversion upset a lot of people. You know, it, it did. And in our day, I think it needs to be said that not everybody who thinks that they are being persecuted is really being persecuted, okay? There are a lot of people today playing the persecution card in, in church world, and it's not true in all cases. There are some Christians who are being persecuted, for sure, in some places of the world. But on the other hand, there are some Christians who are just not nice people. You know what I'm saying? Have you, have you seen some of that before? Of course you have. So, so it's not always persecution. At the same time, Saul also tells us later that uh, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He said in 2 Timothy 3, he said, in all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so his point there is being a Christian, it might cost you. It might cost you. And, and if that's a deal breaker for you, you know what? It's actually super easy to avoid. Because when the Spirit calls you, when he sort of taps you on the shoulder and says, come, follow Jesus, all you have to do is say, nah, pass. Nah, no, no. Not, not, don't love the idea of persecution. Don't love the idea of, of opposition. No thanks. And, and, and if that's you, I would, like, I, I understand. We don't love persecution. We don't love opposition. We don't love being treated like we're, you know, intolerant or unkind or, or, regressive or or narrow-minded or anything like that by the culture nobody loves that nobody loves losing friends because of our faith nobody loves tension between family members because of our faith but i would if but if that's you if that's gonna if that's if it's tempting to in those moments to walk away from jesus i'd also remind you of his promise that Everyone who has left houses or, or let me say it again. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That's Jesus talking. 
That's Jesus talking. Anything that it costs you to follow him in this life will be paid back a hundred times over in the next. Isn't that great news? I think that that is amazing news. And on those hard days when I'm just like, the opposition is so great. Sometimes the opposition isn't even out there. Sometimes the opposition is my own heart. Oh, that is such good news. So let me let me close with a few questions as I sort of, you know, continue to think it over. One question is this, who who in my life is being changed before my eyes? Who in my life is being changed before my eyes? Who am I getting to see the before and after? Who is seeing a light and hearing hearing a voice, okay? Second question, when I have a part to play in another person's transformation, will I? Will I play my part? Even if it's not a very big part, like maybe it's just Ananias, I'm just a pair of hands. Maybe I need to risk my reputation for another person. Maybe I need to invite them to share a home or to share a meal. Am I willing to risk my reputation in order to play a part in that person's transformation? The third question is this. What, what's the difference between your before and your after? When you, when you look at your life and your story, can you see some differences between the before and after in you? And it might not be you who's actually able to answer that question. Well, maybe you need to check in with friends and family in order to answer that question. But as you think it over, it'd be really helpful for you to consider, what's the difference between my before and my after? You know, I I love that that years after this conversion moment, Paul Paul the Apostles, he, he himself is going to say, you know what, guys? I'm not who I was before. I'm not that guy anymore. But I'm, I also know that I'm not quite who I should be in my after. Like I'm, not the, I'm not who I was in my before moments, but I know that I'm not quite where I'm going to be in my after. Like, don't quite take the after photo just yet. And Paul's going to go on and he's going to say in Philippians 3, he's going to say, everything that was gained to me, like in those days, in my old days, everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss for because of Christ. Not that I've already reached my goal. Not that I've already, not that I'm already perfect, but I make it, I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. I'm not in my after yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.